Welcome to Industrial Theory with Carrie Siggins. In this podcast, we talk with leaders and doers throughout the industrial cleaning industry who are changing the way we think about cleaning the world. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. Welcome to Industrial Theory. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I'm excited to be here today with my guest, Brad Clark. Brad is the CEO of Hydrochem PSC, headquartered in Deer Park, Texas. Brad has been the president CEO of PSC since 2005 and in 2017 acquired Hydrochem to create an all-encompassing industrial services company, which now is one of the largest, if not the largest, industrial cleaning contractors in the U.S. Thanks for being on the show, Brad. Thank you for having me. All right, let's jump into it. You've been in this industry for well over a decade now. What do you like best about it and what do you like least about it? Well, it's a... you know, it's a very competitive industry and it's not, it's not one that gets a lot of recognition for its glamour. And uh, what I really like about this business is that the, the people who are attracted to it and like having a career in this business do it because they generate a lot of energy by working together. And that, that mojo that they get, that interaction that they get and working in a really challenging environment is what makes it worthwhile. You know, we all know how, how hard it is to succeed. And so, when we do as a team, and, and this is a team sport for sure, we like to recognize the accomplishments that we have together. I mean, I like that part of the business a lot. How about what you don't like? <laughs> I, you know, I, I honestly, you and I have talked about this in the past. I, I wish that uh, our industry had more respect for the operational and technical skill that's required to do this work. Uh, the people that, that we work with have committed a great deal of their life to being craftsmen and they have some very unique and very valuable skills in an industry that is very dangerous and very complex. And I, I often feel that uh, the the knowledge that they present uh, that or that they that they possess and, and the way that they execute and the dedication that they have getting up in the middle of the night to, to go out and solve very complex problems for the customers. I often feel like uh, this is overlooked and, and and I wish the industry would show our craftsmen the, the respect that I think they deserve. I think it's important that we work, continue to work diligently to turn this into a craft. Uh, I think that's what's really missing from this. This is some of the most important work that can be done in a plant. It's also the most dangerous. And you know, the, uh, these guys are working on the equipment that these plants um, are making their money off of. And so I think it's really important to be looking at the that industrial cleaning contractors as a you know, critical path uh, partner. And I think part of that is you know, creating a craftsmanship program that can help us get there. You know, we should have something that's very similar to welders and pipe fitters and, and boilermakers and electricians. Um, it's just such dangerous and important work that it seems like we're doing ourselves an injustice by not having that. I think, I think our industry was behind because of the very diverse way that our work gets executed in the plant. A welder welds and he takes you know, two pieces of steel and he welds them together and a pipe fitter does virtually the same thing and electricians do the same thing. But industrial cleaning has such a wide variety of applications uh, to the business that it doesn't lend itself to that very narrow craft model uh, that we see in other, in other parts of the plant with other kind of blue collar services. So I, I think as time goes on, um, 
we, we can become much more specific about the things or the applications where that kind of craftsmanship is appropriate. And, and then it's incumbent on, I think, the suppliers and also the owners to, to make that kind of training a, a requisite. I think as the equipment becomes more complex to operate, as we, you know, design and develop uh, tooling to make the work more efficient and we remove more and more workers, the ones that we do employ, will be much higher skilled. And because of that, I think that that, that craft and apprenticeship and journeyman process uh, for that craft is, is going to be an important part of that. We, we have to drive that as a supplier and our customers need to see the value in doing that as a, as a consumer of our service. Yeah, I agree. And of course, Gary uh, Noto has been working uh, with the WJTA on creating that first step of um, of a training program and i'm really hoping that over the next couple of years we can see that grow and where we pull more of the asset owners into the fold where they say we understand that that this is dangerous work and this type of training has to be um it's required to come onto our facility so hopefully that will uh, be able to build upon itself of course now with everything going on with covid it's going to be interesting to see how fast that can actually roll out and and expand that program you're, you're right about about covid i think in the short term carry it's going to make it very hard for anybody to focus on doing this but in the long term i think it actually could create a stronger incentive to move in that direction where any customer is going to be interested in having far fewer people come in and out of the gate every single day and that can be accomplished by deploying technology to make that possible and then that technology i think will drive that craft training program even faster so you know it's going to be important for us to kind of stick to our guns through this time period and realize that in the short term our customers are just looking for ways to 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 reduce cost but ultimately the best long-term tool for them is to deploy technology and to train employees uh, where there, there will be fewer of them, but they will be higher paid and better trained. I agree completely with you. I just led a, um, a global conference call for uh, YPO, the President's Organization, yesterday on this very mm -hmm. topic where we had um, some great panelists discussing, you know, how automation is really and technology is really going to change and what's happening with industrial IoT and smart enabled products and how we can bring that into refineries and, and plants and, and you know our, our type of industry where we can really make a significant change in driving technology. But you know we're already so far behind um, from, from you know many other industries. It'll be interesting to see how fast you know adoption really speeds up because of COVID and you know are, are people going to want it more or are they going to be resistant to it because it costs more upfront? I, I think initially less. Uh, but I think in the long term more. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's talk a little bit about PSC and, and Hydrochem in your career. So PSC has gone through a lot of change since you started back in 2005 and acquiring Hydrochem was probably one of the biggest uh, changes you've gone through. Uh, would you say that's the most significant pivot point or what has been um, excluding COVID because we'll get into that a little bit later. Well, I, I think there's been a few a few pivot points that, that kind of laid the tracks for our business model that we still have today. You know, back in 2005, our, our first big pivot was was taking the company from working on a call-out basis with tier two customers to working on, on customer sites as an embedded supplier in tier one customers. And this, this was new. And the next pivot that we had once we had these relationships 
uh, was to add technical and, and what we called highly engineered services to these embedded relationships. And, and so this is a really great model. First was the transition from the call out tier two to tier one embedded. And then once we had the embedded site model and we were making progress with that, we wanted to add value uh, into those relationships with the customers, sell things that were higher valued uh, to our clients, but, but higher margin for us. And, and this model worked well for 10 years through you know, two pretty substantial economic cycles. Right. And we were able to grow the business from, you know, 200 million in 2005 to something like, you know, 370 million uh, by 2013, 2014. So this was, you know, two really big pivots. And it really was a template of why Hydrochem and PSC made so much sense. And we just could continue the same strategy on a much larger scale. And it opened a lot of opportunities for us. So when Hydrochem and PSC got together, the embedded base doubled, more than doubled overnight. And the opportunity to cross-sell uh, technical and engineered services uh, to that customer base more than doubled. And so what we needed next was the ability to scale these technical services much faster to exploit the strength of, of all of those relationships. We couldn't organically grow the technical and engineered services fast enough to really, you know, populate them into that very large embedded uh, and very strong customer base. And so with this big platform, uh, then acquisitions began to make a lot more sense for our business. And this was new to us. And we could see that we could bring very substantial value uh, from acquisitions, taking smaller specialty companies who could otherwise struggle to be introduced to Hydrochem and PSC's business space and, and bring uh, access to our customers and bring avenues and, and new opportunities for them. And this, this led to very rapid growth through acquisition, but also very rapid, rapid growth by, by organically growing the acquisitions once we had made them uh, because we could cross sell them uh, into our embedded base. And so our, our $200 million business in 2005, uh, prior to this COVID nonsense, was uh, close to a billion dollars in revenue and, and uh, around 6,000 employees. We, we kind of stuck to the same formula. Uh, we were just able to widen out the scale. And by doing that, we really created a whole bunch of new opportunities uh, for us to make. And we, we've been very, very fortunate. So acquisitions are hard. Uh, that's all the great benefits and, and creating new opportunities. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned um, through doing this so many times? Well, um, you know, first, I think the, the acquisition is a whole lot easier when you can go out and convince people that uh, what, you're, what you're doing by combining these services, just like we were talking about a minute ago, is very valuable to the client. Uh, our employees are very customer focused. And so if they can get excited about what this story means to their customers and how they could go talk to them about it, then, then I think it's a whole lot easier to sell. And so one of, the, one of the key learnings that I've had in this process is if the story really works for our clients, it, it absolutely works for our employees. Our employees spend all of their time every day uh, out at the customer site. And if there's something uh, that, that we could do by bringing two companies together that the customers would say, hey, I love that. That makes sense. And our employees are going to be all over it. So spending a lot of time early talking about this go-to-market story, I think, creates a lot of excitement. And it, it removes some of the fear and apprehension that, that I think is normal when you're looking at the change of making an acquisition. You just keep working on what the story the two businesses can do together in as many face-to-face -face meetings 
and get people to imagine having that same discussion with their customers. I think that's that's been a big takeaway. And I think the second one really comes to the, the cultural issue of the leadership, combining leadership. And the key takeaway for me over the past many acquisitions now has been that if you get an early selection of your leadership team, you get rid of a lot of the political wars that come, uh, all the infighting, uh, that would happen when the business should really be focused on the integration uh, go away. So you, you quickly select your team. You, you don't let them self-select and, and then focus on the integration with the team that you have. And we were fortunate, particularly with Hydrochem and PSC, to have very clear leaders and a very, very short integration schedule. Uh, the integration schedule with Hydrochem and PSC was abnormally short, maybe six weeks. And so we had very little time to make our choices. And, and actually that ended up being a blessing because more time would have led us just to the same decision, but with a whole lot more uh, infighting and, and heartache and, and political jockeying. And, and I think to, to, to be effective after the integration started, once you've selected that team, I think really looking at the behaviors and setting expectation for leadership has been very important. And we, we did 360 uh, evaluations of our entire senior leadership team. And you and I have talked about the value of these, these, this feedback to your, to your, to your leadership team and to ours. And we performed it about four months into the integration. And we made sure that people from different heritages uh, were involved in providing feedback to those leaders than than what they were ordinarily accustomed to. We had two two very established businesses that had been working together for 25 or 30 years, and it would be very easy to get a good review from somebody that had already known you for 25 years. We were much more interested in the feedback from somebody who had just met you and was now listening to that that leader uh, profess what he wanted to do uh, after just three months. And so we made sure that we got feedback from different cultures. We also got feedback from a large cross-section of our field. And then we brought that all together and we replayed it back to the senior leadership team. And it was a very humbling experience uh, because we thought we thought we were doing really well. And the feedback that we got from the field uh, was not uh, consistently that. And it, it really uh, gave us some ideas about what we needed to do to step up uh, uh, our behaviors, our leadership style, and how we were communicating the goals of the integration. Yeah, that's great. I just bought a company in the midst of COVID and integration has been a really interesting uh, process, <laughs> right? I mean, I went back and forth about, am I making the right decision? I mean, it's absolutely the right decision for the future of the company. And all my previous acquisitions had been, you know, buying dealers where they already, you know, knew Stone Age and were part of the industry and in buying a, an IoT, um, you know, product development company, while they share the same engineering passion and mindset, you know, they're in a whole different market. It's a whole different world for them. Uh, much more glamorous than what we do. Right. Uh, and so it's not hard. Uh, yeah, it's not hard. But yeah, the integration piece has been really interesting, especially with such a different type of company. And, uh, you know, how do I, you know, run them as two separate companies, but meld my management team together and, you know, really start to build um, each other's you know, you build each company off of each other's strength. So it's been a really interesting process and a challenge of, of doing this all remotely because oh, you know, yeah. I've been in Reno, uh, have been in Reno three times by now since I made the acquisition on March 31st and I just have to do everything over, over Zoom. And, and that's a really interesting and, and not easy process to go through. Well, the one, the one thing that the, the COVID crisis has done, and I'm sure you've seen this too, is that it gets people uh, very quickly on the edge of their seats, uh, ready to accept change. 
and, and that part is a positive. And, and looking at, you know, at integrating companies in, an, in this world, which, which, which we're not going through an acquisition at the moment, you could see how you would be able to get people laser aligned uh, with what you needed to do next to make sure that you're taking care of the business. That part would be a plus. Yeah. Uh, the, the part that would be a challenge is that the, that the business that, that you thought you bought might not exactly be the same, at least in the short run. Absolutely. And, you know, Stone Age is such a, it, this has been um, a very interesting time for us because Stone Age is so much about, you know, we're together. <laughs> Everything is in Durango, right? right? Yeah. We, we, you have to be in Durango to like get our culture and feel our culture. And I've realized how that's not necessarily true, um, but it's a lot different trying to do it with, you know, our branch teams around the world and then now with this new company. And so, you know, yes, we are being really efficient in how we are getting things done because it's, you know, you hop on the Zoom call and it's boom, 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 and that's all going yeah. to help. But it's that whole, right. like, what does it feel like to be a Stone Age employee which is something that we're an employee owned company. And that is like what we, you know, that's what we live and breathe every day. And that's my challenge now is to figure out how do I do that if we're not all together, you know, that's what we do. <laughs> I, I get it. it. It helps to have already established that trust and that communication and even part of that culture. And that would be a, that'd be an interesting challenge. Well, it's been, it's definitely one that um, I'm taking head on, but it's, I'm doing it differently than I would be doing it. That's for sure. But that's what we're all doing, right? I mean, it's dramatically, right. dramatically changed our lives in such a short period of time. So what would you say has impacted you the most out of all of this personally and professionally? Well, you know, I think the way that we started this off, because this business generates so much energy by working as a team, you know, being isolated from the team is is hard on all of us. And, you know, we've had to quickly adapt to different methods to communicate and getting that energy level up is is now more challenging. You know, for me personally, there was there was a lot of work to be done that was uh, you know, very unpleasant. It was cost cutting. Like every company, we had to go through a number of layoffs and reduce our expenses to get it in line with revenue. And this meant that all of our managers had to perform uh, layoffs. Every manager in the organization, including me, I had to do this. And so I, I think the hardest part was that um, I was so proud of how the team responded and how they executed and how we got our cost in line very, very quickly. I, I think I think we we just did a remarkable job. So many others now are just now waking up and saying, hey, this is a much different world than we thought. And here at HPC, uh, we're waking up saying, you know, I think we're done with the changes that we need to make. We can go focus on executing. So I think that the efficiency was remarkable. But then when you sit back and you look at the names of the employees who are not currently on our payroll, it, it brings a very sobering realization that uh, while, while we've executed well, we've affected the lives of some really great people, uh, all of this so that our company can survive and flourish, you know, when the world returns. And I think that's been, to me, that's been the, the hardest part is that we've done a great job at doing something that was, uh, you know, very unpleasant to do. Yeah, I know. One of the interesting things I've really learned about my leadership style and all of this is that uh, I like being a wartime CEO. And I think it's that weight of, um, of responsibility um, and optimism and, uh, and, you know, decisiveness and compassion, all of that mixed together, I think has really suited my style well. And I like the pressure of, you know, having to make tough decisions and, um, and, and make real time decisions. Uh, I much prefer to fly by the seat of my pants than plan. 
And so that's been an interesting thing out of this of like, I, I'm thriving in this pressure, even though it's really hard and I've had sleepless nights of, of, of concern here and am I making the right decisions? What's, Sounds uh, like this for when, when leaders need to lead. Yeah, absolutely. What's the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself, um, your leadership style out of all of this? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that I've always been a transparent leader. Not maybe not everybody will agree with that, but I, I think transparency uh, right now helps a lot. Uh, when you when you have trust in the organization, then you can ask them to make some very difficult and emotional changes that we knew we would have to had to make. And this means, you know, for me, being transparent meant telling the organization that we would be reducing headcount and reducing salary costs. You know, in a mass video that we distributed to the entire organization. Remember, we have 6,000 people. And, and so, you know, I think taking a culture of transparency and a consistent pattern of being a transparent leader, which again, I, I hope I've been, has been probably the most important way to communicate with people the urgency of the situation and to create the followership that was needed in order to execute very, very quickly. This was not a time to move slowly. So we, you know, we wanted to redraw our picture of a future that showed that even though the business was reduced, we still had a business, and that if we could get our costs in line with that new level of business, we would have a profitable business. And then finally, if we could be profitable in this environment, then we would be able to grow more quickly than any competitor uh, who didn't make changes as fast as we did. So we, we wanted to get the message out directly and unfiltered to everybody in the organization and remove any ambiguity about the significant changes that we'd have to make in the very short time that we had to do it. And this wasn't always appreciated. It wasn't always well received. And, and in some cases it created uh, a great deal of, you know, follow-up conversation and worry that, that was, I think in many ways inevitable, but on the plus side, uh, I've gotten some good feedback that this honesty and directness I think was more helpful ultimately than it was alarming. At least I hope it was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think transparency is so incredibly important. I believe in it too. What other attributes um, have you called upon to get P um, um, Hydrogen PSC through this time right now too? Well, um, I, I think, I think um, and not necessarily my leadership attributes, but a, a good leadership attribute is, is one to reach out and, and get some outside points of view. And, and in this regard, we've got some great board members and, and I've reached out to them and, and that's what they're there for. And even other CEOs in the, in the industry uh, who can help look at what we were forecasting in the business uh, based on our experiences and our scenarios of going through a couple of cycles in the past, ask them what level of action that they're taking and, and, and try to understand the risk that our model uh, possesses relative to theirs. And so I, I think it was helpful for me to reach out and talk to other people, listen to what they were doing, how hard they were pushing the organization, how far uh, they saw the fall uh, going. Uh, part of this is misery loves company, right? Uh, but part of it really, to me, the most important thing was validating the risk that you're putting on the business by, by either making cuts that are too deep or not deep enough. And I, I think um, this has been uh, something that I've that I've done in the past and I think it's been successful and I and I've tried to do it here too. Yeah, it's great to be able to reach out across the industry and and see what other people are doing and and get advice like that. Uh, what advice did you give to your fellow peers? Well, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure I'm the the right person to give great advice to them. What I what I did is uh, just just told them the, the way that we saw it 
and what we what we were we were doing and um and then what we were asking people the changes that we were asking people to make and when our organization responded so wonderfully i was just trying to encourage them that you, you can build your business the size and shape of the business and I'm, I'm speaking really about the overhead structure of the business you can build it uh, to what this new level of normal is going to look like and, and and so we we, we kind of joked here were we going to see a v-shape recovery or a u or a w and and i said no we're going to see an l um, it's going to go down and it's going to stay down and if we took that point of view then it was easier for us to make very significant changes than if we took the point of view that it was a v and we could clearly see that it was rising on the other side. And so if we said it's going to be an L, we could right-size the business, make very rapid changes, and, and not fret about it. And then when the business returns, you know, we'll be in a position to take advantage of that whenever that might be. My, my advice was don't, don't, don't think about the V. Think about, think about it being an L. And if it's an L, then you know, following our own advice and how should we shape our business. Yeah, I like that. I haven't heard that before. So what do you think the long, the short-term economic impact um, is going to be for the, the, the shutdown on our industry? Do you believe that it's going to be an L or, or do you see something else now that we're, you know, two and a half months into this? You know, I, I, if I knew it'd be, I would be much more at ease. Uh, that's why I think it's, it was important to get the business size for, for this sec, for the second quarter. Now, our view is that, you know, in downstream uh, refining petrochemical that, the, the second quarter is going to be the quarter. And then from here, things will uh, slowly get better. So we, you know, we saw a, an immediate slowdown in work in uh, uh, April. Now, I expect that our customers will will move a little bit uh, uh, slower than we did because they're much bigger companies uh, to start reaching out and talking to their partners and looking for ways to cut costs. And that, that those conversations are going to continue uh, through the summer. So uh, while the the economic activity in the country may be at a low point in the second quarter. I think our industry is going to uh, be challenged for another quarter after that before things start to get materially better. Our customers have a lot of inventory to work off. They're, they're coming back to work now and beginning to look to strategic suppliers like us to find ways uh, to help them reduce costs. And I, th I think for that, uh, the, the recovery of our industry is going to lag a little bit behind, uh, you know, the people just going back to work and, and a, a kind of a, a resumption of activities, even if it's at a reduced level uh, in June and July, I think we should expect to see that in this, in our industry for at least another quarter, maybe the rest of this year. And then what do you think beyond? What about 2021? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it would take, um, it would take, uh, it would take extraordinary uh, recovery for the business to get back to 2019 in 2021. The way I, the way I'm thinking about it right now is that our, our new level of business will, will grow about eight to 10%. It will grow faster than it normally grows, but it won't go back overnight to what it was in 2021. I don't expect those run rates to resume until sometime in 2022. That's kind of how I'm looking at it too. Yeah. yeah. So what opportunities do you see coming from COVID? What's the silver lining in all of this? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple. Uh, we're, we're an industrial cleaning uh, company, and we, we have incredible capability to clean process units, and, and we're very capable of uh, cleaning the customer's facilities to provide uh, a high level of security that, that uh, the employees who work for them, our employees and, and the customer's employees, 
uh, can do so uh, safely. And so we've had a very quick uh, business pop up to do uh, decontamination work for COVID and that, that has softened uh, the blow. It, it hasn't eliminated the blow, but it certainly softened it. And that's been, that's been kind of neat to see. And that, that we, we've redeployed our, our technology and our R&D people to uh, develop equipment that we can use to spray disinfectant in applications from commercial office buildings uh, to industrial process facilities. And we probably have close to 100 people a day working on doing this now, which has really been neat. I, I think the real uh, silver lining is going to be rethinking our business model and thinking about how, how we sell and thinking about uh, remote selling. And remote selling, I, I think, is likely to be the new standard. And this means leveraging for us uh, our considerable on-site resources uh, where the selling is likely to be done. Um, it, in the past, we would we would have a sales force that would go out and really carry the flag for the or organization. And now it's going to be very difficult to connect with customers doing business that way. And we have this incredible resource of thousands of people who work every day in our customers' plants who are now going to carry the flag uh, that the salespeople conventionally uh, carried. And so the silver lining is going to be we're going to have a very different sales model that I think is is uniquely suited to Hydrochem PSC's strengths. That's great. We're doing the same exact thing. Um, you know, we're such a, eh, uh, I've kind of teased a little bit, like our selling is like so, you know, 1980s. <laughs> we have to it take is. our equipment and you have to put your hands on it, right? I'm bringing samples for you. And it makes sense, of course, in, in selling, you know, industrial uh, products that, especially as we're moving more and more towards, you know, full automation and robotics, and we're bringing along an industry that doesn't have um, as much experience with that. Like, I, right. want it. I want to see it. I need to understand it, how it works. And, and we're not going to be able to do that. So, you know, how do we really digitize our sales process? And what does that look like? And how do we make it really easy for people to understand what we do and to interact with us in whatever yep. way they use and ultimately buy from us? So... Yep. Right and and, think, and think, think about how efficient uh, that, that can make our business in the future. It, it, and it can change the way that we communicate with our customers and make it much more effective. And everything from our sales material uh, to, to videos and how we're presenting uh, our go-to-market strategy can all change substantially as a result of this. And I think become much better and much stronger. I do too. I think more consistent, right? That's that's what I want. I want, I mean, we have such a strong brand message, um, but it's not consistently communicated because we have, in, you know, with different levels of experience and different amount of time with the company and living in different countries. And how do we create a consistent experience for every single one of our customers? And I think through this process, we can really do that. We can really fine tune our message so that everybody really understands the value that we can bring. All right, now let's pivot to something a bit more fun. Like me, you love driving fast cars and fishing yourself. Uh, and I know that you've raced, uh, so uh, raced cars. So tell us, why do you do it? And um, and what else do you like to race? Well, I, I would just say that, look, I started racing a long time ago when I was in college and I didn't have any money. And I happened into a relationship with a guy that he allowed me to be the mechanic on the car and then split time in driving. And I, I found the sport to be, of course, it's exhilarating, uh, but I found it to be a great uh, family sport as well. And it was something back then that I did with my mom and dad that, that even today provides, you know, very special memories for me 
uh, of us going through those experiences, traveling to the tracks together, spending the weekends out there racing the, the, the highs and lows that go along with racing. It's a very competitive sport. I like to say about racing the same thing that I say about this business. You can love racing, but it doesn't always love you back. And, and it has very high highs and very low lows. And, you know, it was this time when I was a kid that, you know, I also learned to fly. And I didn't have any money and to, to learn how to fly. So I worked at an airport and they taught me how to fly. They gave me a flying lesson every day. And, and these are two uh, sports that I developed a love and a passion for when I was 16 that I, that I still have today. And I'm, I'm very fortunate, uh, very fortunate to have become involved in them. And now I, I, I don't fly anymore, but um, I'm still involved in racing and getting my boys involved in racing has proved to be uh, incredible family activity and sport for all of us to share. And we've done it now. Uh, I've done it now with the kids for, for 14 years. And, uh, and so how does it feel to watch your, your son's race and, and share that exhilaration, but also the, the danger of it too? Well, you know, the, the, we started racing the, with the boys' uh, go-karts when they were, you know, very young. And we, we were always very careful and thoughtful. And it was a great way for us to spend weekends together. And I remember coming home on Sundays just absolutely exhausted, uh, being out in the sun and out on the track all weekend. You know, I, I think the as far as the danger goes, you know, we're very careful to make sure that uh, the boys have been involved in in racing that with cars that are that are very safe and very durable. And it's teaching them, it has taught them a great deal of respect about uh, uh, their own self-control. Uh, racing is a very emotional and passionate sport, and it's taught them a, a lot of self-control about how to be composed and manage your emotions and in and, and, and doing so, I think uh, they can do it safely. I love that. Um, my son is, um, he loves to race. He races BMX, uh, in fact, won um, the state championship last year, six years old, <laughs> or six year olds. <laughs> um, and so he is that real competitive, um, that real competitive drive, but I love watching him stay so calm. You know, at six years old or seven years old now, he's just really learning this whole idea of, mental preparation for it. And now he's getting into uh, racing dirt bikes. We ride dirt bikes some, uh, and we have a track out here at our property. And it's interesting watching him now have to learn that with something that is more powerful than, you know, a bike right. with your own feet. And, you know, what does that look like? How do you manage your emotions through this? And how do you pick yourself up when you crash? Because you crash a lot on a dirt bike. Right. So it's been really interesting to watch him um, learn this, especially at such a young age. It's, it's scary, but it also just fills me with joy and pride um, at the same time. I think it's a, it's an incredibly rewarding experience and, and it, it's, 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 not, nothing is made, nothing could make me happier personally in my life than watching them uh, grow up with this, sharing, sharing these opportunities and experience with them. It's, just, it's been fantastic. So now I have to ask, are they faster than you? Um, you know, my, my youngest is, is definitely faster than me, and he's developed some skill, and, and he still races today. And I watched him from a very young age when he, you know, was in my mirror to, uh, to by the time he was 16, he was always in front of me. And no, nothing m makes it, me happier than to watch him be accomplished in the sport, uh, to do it really well, and to do it better than me. So imagine how that feels when your six-year-old son is faster than you. 
<laughs> we uh, we go up to we go up to Whistler in the summers. Um, uh, I don't think that'll be happening this summer, but uh, to the Crankworks, uh, which is a big downhill, um, you know, put on by Red Bull, all the crazy bike tricks. And last summer, Jack was six, and um, and he can race downhill faster than me. Anything where there's a jump, I slow down, and he speeds up, and it's like, oh my god. You know, it is so much fun to ride behind him. I always want to ride behind him because I love watching him, but it's also the most humbling thing. I'm like, God, my six-year-old can ride faster downhill than I can. I get it. And it's, uh, I, I get it. I, I, I love it. I, I would watch him pull out and come past me and, you know, even kind of shake his head at me when he saw me do something that he didn't, you know, he didn't think was as proficient as what he would do. And it made me very happy. I mean, I had to smile. Sometimes I even got emotional. <laughs> Absolutely. I know exactly the way that you feel. Well, I know being a father has been a really important um, part of your life. How do you think um, it's made you a better leader? Well, I, you know, I, it certainly teaches you humility, right? <laughs> there's no question about that. And when you, when you get home from work and there's, there's a project or something that has to be done, you know, that you, you, you go from your work life to your personal life. And uh, I think the humility that comes from that is realizing that, you know, when you're, when you're a leader, when you're asking people to make changes that they need to make in their business uh, or as leaders themselves, that they still have to go home and face their families and work with their kids on their projects just the same way. It gives you a, a, a motivation that there's, you know, something far more important than just work. And I think that that value that it creates and how you treat people is uh, is very important. That's beautiful. I love that. All right. So someday it's going to be time to turn the keys over to the business. Um, so what's next? What what do you see for your in your future for yourself? Well, you know, no, just just like with my kids, uh, you know, beating me in racing, and nothing would make me happier than to turn turn over the the reins of this organization to to some great leader that has come up uh, from this or organization. And that would make me very happy. And when that day comes, and it, it invariably it will come, you know, I would, I would like to continue to help uh, them with any advice uh, that I can help them with. And I would, I would want to be useful to them uh, as, as they put their own name and their own course on the company and their own leadership style on the business. Uh, but I would like to be able to take uh, my experience and make it, um, valuable to them, you know, and, and let them use it if they want to use it, let them learn on their own when they, when they feel like they need to learn on their own, um, but keep them from learning the same hard lessons the hard way that I have. So I, I think that that's where my future would be that first I want to, you know, create leaders in this company that, that, that are more than capable of not only of taking my position, but doing far better in it than I'm doing, and then help them in any way I can after that. And then go sailing. And then go sailing. That sounds like a great goal. Uh, I share that. Uh, I share that same vision with you too. someday I'd like to be able to um, to be able to hand over the reins and, and be in that advisory position, you know, like an executive chairman or something like that. And, uh, and then really see what the next generation can do. You know, I came from taking over from John and Jerry, who, you know, had run the business for 25 years. And when I'm done, it will be somewhere close to that, I'm sure. And then, you know, looking at that, that, that person who comes in for the next 25 years, it will right. be a really rewarding thing. I'm sure challenging um, in its own way, but very rewarding. Sure. sure. Yeah, right. <clears throat> like your kids, right? You, That's right. You don't have to do it my way, but I really want you to. <laughs> right. I don't want them to be me. Yeah, they can't be, right? And that's not even what the organization needs, right? Everybody. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That 
that that's you're you're exactly right. The they need to be whoever it is it needs to be able to come in and put their own name on the company and and uh, cultivate the ideas that they see in the direction that they see um, in, in a way that that I just won't be able to because you know I see things through a certain lens of of, of having been here now for 15 years. And that, that's what will make the change valuable. Absolutely. All right. So we're about to wrap up. Um, what's one piece of wisdom or um, a nugget of goodness that you'd like to leave with our listeners today? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not a guy who's going to have any nugget of wisdom. <laughs> I, I'm not the right guy for that. Oh, that is so not true. <laughs> All right. Well, I won't put you on the spot with it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to yeah, I'd, I'd say that you know maybe to, to be fair that the, the the one the one thing that I have been, been able to appreciate and enjoy is that I, I never really thought that coming to work at Hydrogen PSC was work. And if you really love what you're doing, then you're 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 not going to view it as work. I'm very appreciative and very thankful for the the men and women that work at Hydrogen PSC and the opportunity to work with them and create opportunities together is uh, very inspirational. It's been incredibly rewarding, and I'm I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to to be in the role that I am to try to help them see that, uh, you know, together we can create some amazing opportunities. And so I'm just very grateful for this. Yeah, that's a great way to end. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on my podcast. I really appreciate this time together. I think this was um, a fascinating interview and I'm sure that um, everybody will uh, love to have a little bit more insight into your world. Well, thanks for asking me. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Industrial Theory with Carrie Siggins. Thanks for listening. Thank you all for listening. We hope you appreciate it. We're always open for ideas. So uh, if you would like to hear from somebody in the industry or about a particular topic, you can email me at carrie.siggins at stoneagetools.com.